Amen. I, I've said this before, but it's uh, just for me the, the most, I, I don't know if I want to say fulfilling because I love worship in all forms, um, but there's something special about just hearing God's people sing praises to him. And I love the way that we ended that, that last song. What a blessing that was to just hear the God's people singing praises to him. Uh, just as one voice, as one church. What a blessing. Uh, this morning, uh, we do want to again encourage you that we are going to be diving into a kind of a one-week message. Uh, we are not in a series right now. We just finished up uh, a, a longer series about the church. The church is, and we talked about a lot of things. So we encourage you, if you were not a part of that, to go back and, and check those out online. You can do that on our app, North Goodland BC, in your app store, or even on northgoodland.org on the website there. But this morning, uh, as I was kind of praying about, okay, Lord, we're not really moving into a series just yet. Uh, There are some things the Lord's been laying on my heart. But this morning, I wanted to kind of speak to the reality that there is hope for the prodigal. There is hope for the prodigal. And just this last week and even last weekend, just some things the Lord was laying on my heart. And as I began kind of writing some things down and getting into God's word, I was just so encouraged to know that there is truly hope for the prodigal. And so when you think about that word prodigal, many of us, if you're familiar with church, you know the story of the, quote, prodigal son. I was always amazed in my, uh, I went to uh, finish at Brown City High School. And in my senior English class, the textbook they gave us had uh, Psalm 23 and had the story of the prodigal son in it. And as examples of literature, great literature. And we know the Bible is full of various kinds of literature, different styles of writing. But I remember I was so amazed when I was flipping through that book. I was a new Christian and I came across that, the story of the prodigal son. And I I took my Bible to class at that time. And so I pulled out my Bible in class and I'm like comparing. I'm like, this is the actual prodigal son parable. This is from scripture. And I went to my teacher, I said, and I had my Bible and I said, how is it that we can't talk about this, but you can talk about that? I said, that's scripture. And she was a believer. And I'm I'm so thankful. Let me just pause here and say, I'm so thankful for Christian teachers and educators in our public school system. Amen. Um, They are doing the hard work of ministering the kids, ministering to other teachers. Um, If you don't know my wife and and many here in our church actually work in the school system. And so we're so thankful for Christian teachers and educators that are being the church in those fields. And so we absolutely give a hand. Yeah, for sure. It is not easy to be a Christian teacher or educator today if you're outspoken in your faith. And so I asked her, I said, why is this okay and not, not, not okay? And she said, I can talk about that as literature, but I can't talk about it as it is in the gospel, meaning the story of salvation and things like that. But I'm always amazed that the word of God is evident and is present throughout all of our history as a nation. It is just saturated throughout our nation's founding and the continuation of our nation today. And so when I think about that story of the prodigal son, and many of you have either read it as literature, maybe you've read it in scripture, maybe you've just heard it talked about, that story, we tend to think about that as an example of what it means to be prodigal. And actually the word prodigal, if you define prodigal, it actually defines someone who spends recklessly or is lavish in their lifestyle. Someone who spends recklessly, just kind of wild and free with their money, or lives lavish in their lifestyle, basically overindulging just for the sake of overindulging, just to to have more things. And that's what they're living for. Now, again, obvious connection to the story of in Luke of the prodigal son of, of where he took some money. And he will talk about that in a minute where he went to a foreign country and he just spent his wealth on just 
ridiculous things and crazy living and all of that. So it's interesting that the word itself gives us that definition in our culture today. However, the word itself, prodigal, has come to refer to a person, usually a child, that has raised, that was rather raised, raised in a Christian home, and when they come of age, decide to walk away from the faith of their family, or to just merely say, I still believe, but I don't want any part in church. I don't want any part in structured religion. I don't want any part in traditions. I, I believe, but I don't want any of that stuff. And a lot of times in Christian homes, those children that grow up to make those decisions can be labeled prodigal, one that has drifted away, one that has wandered away from the faith or even the traditions of the family. And if we're being honest, I think it's even deeper than that. I think the real idea of a prodigal, one who wanders away, is one who in their heart decides, I'm going to pursue what I want to pursue, and I don't really care what God's will is in this situation. That's really ultimately how we would look at this idea of prodigal. I want it, I'm going to go get it, and if God's for it or against it, doesn't really matter because I want it. And at the end of the day, I'm in charge of me. And if we're being honest, you don't need to raise your hand, but, but I think I'm safe to say most of us, if not all of us, even as followers of Christ would say, by that definition, I've been prodigal at some point in my life. I, as your pastor, can raise my hand and say, I've been prodigal at one point or another in my Christian life. If we look at it as this idea of drifting away and wandering away, choosing the things of the world, choosing the things that I want, my desires, my wants, pursuing my lust for this or that, in spite of what God's word says, then we can all say at one point of another or another, we've all become prodigal. We've all drifted even slightly away from God's desired will for our lives. But I want to be an encouragement this morning. And we're going to speak about maybe a little bit more of specific examples. We're going to talk about in a general sense how individuals that you know may be prodigal to a greater degree than another. We've all drifted in some way, but maybe you know of someone that has drifted and seems to have stayed drifted for a long period of time. I want to encourage you. There is hope for the prodigal. Now, I want to go to a passage. And I want to open with this passage. And I'm going to read this passage. And then I'm going to talk it through. Because I believe this passage has been used as an encouragement and as a weapon to guilt and shame parents in the church. And it's unfortunate that it has, because that's not the intent of this verse. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 22, and we're going to look at verse 6. Now, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are Bibles there in the chairs in front of you and around you. We welcome you to use one of those if you need to. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can just turn to page 474. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided... You can just go ahead and turn to page 474, Proverbs chapter 22. We're going to look at verse 6. So whether you have God's word in print or God's word on a device, you're scrolling there on your phone or whatever it is. Uh, hopefully it's the only app open on your phone is your Bible app right now. Amen. Social media, wait, that's okay. You can do that later. Uh, I used to work with teenagers and right when smartphones were getting smarter, and uh, I always loved when I was working with teenagers. And teenagers, I just want to let you guys know, your parents, us as adults, we may not seem real bright sometimes. But we're pretty with it sometimes. 
And there's a big evidence when a teenager is scrolling social media and using their Bible app. We, believe it or not, we know what you're doing, even though it's like down here under the chair, okay? Because I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I don't need to move my thumbs like this to go to a passage in scripture, okay? But as you're in Proverbs chapter 22, I want to look at this verse and I want to, I want to caution you that we're going to talk through this verse and I may say some things that you have not traditionally heard taught about this verse. And if you have questions on that or you have a disagreement on that, you can be wrong. I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> I would love to talk to you more about that. And email me. My information's in the bulletin there. You can message me on Facebook or whatever. I'd love to talk to you more about this. But I really want to unpack this verse because I believe we've misused this verse. And it's caused so much harm in the church. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let's go ahead and pray. I know Pastor Keith prayed for us already, but let's pray and ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds. Lord, we pray for your wisdom. We thank you for this morning up to this point. What a beautiful morning of worship and celebration of you, celebration of our graduates. Lord, we think of uh, Josie and Sydney. Lord, we also think of Faith Moore, who's not able to be here with us this morning. We just thank you for our graduates. We pray great things over them, Lord, that you would continue to lead them and guide them, and they would know that they will never find true joy, peace apart from you. And so I pray to give them wisdom and guidance, discernment. Thank you for the families involved there, the love and the, the Christian example, the heritage of faith in all of those families. And we pray, Lord, that you would lead, guide, and direct in their lives. And for us this morning, Lord, we pray that we would receive what you have for us with open hearts and open minds. And that you would let someone know this morning by the working of your spirit who has wandered away, there is hope. They are not too far gone. There's no such thing as long as there is breath in their lungs. You have grace that can move in them, work in them, and redeem them. And so, Father, for somebody we know, maybe that's gone prodigal, or somebody here this morning, that they themselves would admit that's where they are, that they would know there is hope for them. Father, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this verse has been used to encourage, as well as discourage, many Christian parents and grandparents. Some have used this uh, verse as a weapon to guilt Christian parents when their children make a sinful decision and put all the blame on the parents. When a child becomes of age, maybe 17, 18, 19, 20, 22, and they make some sinful choices, other Christians in the church that should be the most encouraging and supportive and strengthening group that those parents can run to, they won't go to those people because they know, well, listen, brother, if you would have done your job when that kid was four, five, six, seven years old, they'd never be in this situation. You know, if you were just a better parent, or we make the assumption and we tell parents with a guarantee that that child will come back, that child will return. And we use this verse as the basis for that. And I want to warn you and encourage you at the same time, that is not what this verse is teaching us. That is not the principle of this verse. You see, while Christian parents and grandparents have dealt with self-guilt because they believe that they just did it better, parenting, then their kids would have been better as adults. They would have turned out better. They would have walked with Christ better. They would have made better choices. Now listen, I'll be the first to admit as the father of two sons who are not out of the house yet, underline yet. 
I will admit to you, I have blown it as a parent. Any other parents admit that this morning? At some point in your parenting, you've blown it? If every parent's hand's not up, you're lying in church. You need to be at the altar after church. So that's a failure as a parent. You're lying in church. No, we've all, we've all blown it. If you've never had to go to your child, and even when they're really young, now maybe not Bentley, that's a little young, but when they're really young and you go and say, listen, I'm sorry. I said that in anger. I was motivated by other things. If you've shushed your child in a restaurant, not because you want them to learn how to behave in public, because you were embarrassed as a parent that someone would think you're a bad parent, that's bad parenting. So we've all been there. We've all done those things. But man, sometimes there's those choices our children make when they become adults or even teenagers that we know are greater than some of the daily struggles or daily hiccups or the daily mistakes that kids make. And when that happens and they begin to drift away, so many Christians with, mind you, good intentions, but bad hermeneutics, bad understanding of scripture, misapply this passage and Christian parents go home and go, Lord, I'm so sorry. I, I, I'm a horrible parent. I'm a horrible parent. I'm a, and they beat themselves up. And the truth is we can all grow in our parenting. We can all learn to be better. I'm not saying we don't grow. We don't strive to teach our children the right things. We don't strive to live that example before them. We don't strive to teach them scripture. We can all grow as parents. But the truth is this verse was never meant as a promise, but it's an original intent to be a proverb. When we understand scripture in context, this is not a promise. It's a proverb. I was reminded by this recently listening to a message by Adrian Rogers, who has since obviously gone on to be with the Lord, but what an amazing preacher of God's word. I think it was Adrian Rogers that was jokingly called the Baptist Pope. We don't have a Pope, a Pope as Baptist, but if we did, it would have been him, okay? Just an amazing man of God. And he pointed this out in a message that reminded me and encouraged me with this. When we interpret and apply scripture, we must be careful to keep a passage in context. This means we interpret parables as parables. We interpret law passages as law passages. We interpret prophecy as prophecy. We interpret promises as promises, including who the promise is originally for. So many Christians just haphazardly go through scripture pulling out promises that weren't intended for you. They were intended to a specific group of people at a specific time. Now, the principle of that promise we can draw from and learn from the character of our God, the heart of our God, the love of our God, the intent of our God. But be careful we don't take a promise that was meant for someone else and apply it to us and then get mad when God doesn't supposedly fulfill that promise. God, why didn't you do this? And God's in heaven. If he could, he would say, I didn't tell you that. I wasn't talking to you. I have another promise for you. That's over here. You see, the book of Proverbs in context is a book of wisdom principles that was intended to help the Israelites know how to apply the precepts of the law in their day-to-day life. This specific verse is not a promise that if you train up your child in the Lord, they will always walk with the Lord and never drift into sin. This in in turn is a proverb teaching us a wisdom principle, principle of how to apply the truth of God's word so that we can give our children the best possible chance of walking with the Lord and not to make foolish, unwise decisions. Listen to what one author says. Proverbs 22.6 should be understood as a warning 
If parents don't discipline their children in a wise way, then their kids are going to make foolish choices and continue to do so when they grow up. The discerning parent is aware of this and carefully considers how to guide the child to become self-aware and self-controlled in Christ. Speaking of the New Testament church. So then we will learn to make wise decisions in his, so rather they will learn to make wise decisions in their youth and prayerfully continue to do so the rest of their lives. As parents, we do by God's grace the best we can to teach our children to learn to walk with God through Christ, to give themselves to prayer and to the study of God's word so that they will make choices that are wise and honor the Lord. How we raise our children will have an effect on them, of course. However, individual children make individual choices just as adults. Sometimes they will remain walking consistently with the Lord. Other times they may drift and become what we will call prodigal. And again, this is not a promise. So stop beating yourself up, mom and dad. If your child became 18, 19, 20 years old and made a choice to sin in some way, I'm not saying that you did everything perfect, but that child made a choice and they individually will be held accountable for their choice. Now, do we influence that? Did some of us grow up in situations where we were influenced to make different choices? Absolutely. You guys, I've shared my testimony before. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a, in a divided home. My mom was a, a, when I use this phrase, I mean it, raging alcoholic. Violence would go on three or four or five day binges where we just wouldn't see her. I had a stepdad who did his best to take care of us and raise us up. And, and there was a lot of great things that happened in my childhood, but a lot of negative things too. Until I was 16, I came to Christ. The same year, around that same time, I found out later my mom rededicated her life to the Lord. My younger brother came to Christ and we, him and I were baptized at the old North Goodland. My mom began to give up drinking and walk with the Lord. And, and she actually attended church here for a few years before she went home to be with the Lord in 2007. And in my childhood, I was given every opportunity to make the wrong choice. And I made a lot of wrong choices. And since I've been a Christian, newsflash, I've made wrong choices. But don't let others use this verse as a weapon against you to say, well, listen, mom and dad, if you would have done better, of course we can do better. Of course we can grow. Of course we've all made mistakes. And here's the reality check. And I, again, I don't mean this to be disheartening to you. I want it to be an encouragement. If a child decides to walk away from the Lord and go prodigal, this is not a guarantee that they will come back because that's their choice between them and the Lord. So what do we do then? How is there hope for the prodigal? Great question. Let's dive in. So how do we handle, what do we do when a child or we ourselves go prodigal? I want to look at quickly, just in my looking at scripture, this is not definitive or exhaustive, but three types of prodigals, three types of prodigals. Turn with me to Luke's gospel, chapter 15. We're going to look at the famous example of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. And again, if you're using a Bible provided, that's page 732, 732. Just a warning, that was the introduction. Uh, 
I love our church. Some churches, I say that, they groan. Whenever I've been able to bless to be guest speaker or preacher at a church, I throw those little things out there. And it's interesting the results you get. It's not always so loving and encouraging as here. No one's walked out, though. I should say that. No one's got up and just been like, I'm out. I'm done. Okay. All right. Luke chapter 15. Three types of prodigals. So in Luke 15, 11 through 13, we're not going to read the whole parable, but it's very familiar to most of us. If you've not read it or this is new to you, we encourage you to, to read this on your own in its entirety. All of Luke 15. Um, actually, this is one continuous parable. It begins in uh, Luke 15, uh, in verse 3. The parable begins. The parable takes the perspective of three different situations or individuals and situations, and it goes all the way through the whole chapter. So many people call this passage the parable of the prodigal son. It's actually the parable, in my mind, of what was lost is found. And that parable takes the form of a coin, a sheep, and a son. And so this is one of the examples of something that is lost and has been found. So Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And this is how we know it's most likely a parable because, again, parables tend to say things like a certain man went into a certain city. They're kind of generic stories. Says verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Now here we see the first example of a prodigal would be the obvious prodigal. The obvious prodigal. This young man demanded his inheritance early. That's basically saying, Dad, would you just die so I can get my money? This is what he's saying. I would rather you just be dead so I can have my money and get out of here. I'm just tired of it here. I'm tired of the rules. I'm tired of the restrictions. No, I don't know any of this. It's true to the situation. I'm just trying to imagine what would it be like in our culture today? Dad, would you just, I mean, I'm just so tired of you. I don't want to live here anymore. You know, I just want to go be free. I can say all of this with pretty good confidence because this is the voice of many who are 18, 19, 20 years old today. I just want to go live my life. I had one person tell me, I just want to go make some mistakes and live life. It's foolishness. Wisdom learns from others' mistakes. Foolishness makes them on their own and still doesn't learn from them. So here we see this young man goes to his dad and says, Dad, give me my money. I want my money. And so he does. The father gives him his inheritance. There's a lot of wisdom there. Okay, fine, here. Go do what you want to do. We have to pause here. Is the father guilty Because the son went and wasted his living? No. Who's guilty of wasting his living? The one who wasted his living. So the father gives it to him. Go. And the Bible says, and I love that Jesus uses this term to describe the type of lifestyle that he lived. Riotous. Now, if you have a different translation, it may use different words or different phrases. But really that word riotous means wildly extravagant. Very wasteful. Not just wasteful, very wasteful. Abandoned to vice and corruption. Shamelessly immoral. If you want to read what else that looks like, just go to Romans 1. We read about what it looks like to live shamelessly immoral. 
wildly extravagant, abandoned to vice and corruption. It didn't matter what it was, he was going to do it. He was going to try it. He was going to enjoy it. It didn't matter what it cost. Jesus chose this word to describe how the young man spent his wealth. This man thought that these things would bring happiness and joy and was found wanting. He ended up in a pig pen, if you read the whole story, before coming to his senses and returning home to a loving father ready to forgive. Now, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But he came home and the father was waiting, watching, looking to the horizon, waiting for him to return, and ran and embraced him when he returned. See, this is the obvious prodigal. This is the prodigal that sees the things in the world, sees the pleasures of the world, sees all the wants and temptations and says, I don't care what God's word says, I want that because, man, that looks fun. I've always said, and it's still true to me, you'll never see an alcohol commercial advertising drinking and drunkenness the next morning after the party. When people are puking their guts out, laying in front of a toilet. Gee, I wonder why they don't advertise that. Because the temptation is, oh, hey, if you drink this, if you do this, if you have this, then you'll be wanted. You'll be fun and you'll have all the attention. And we think, oh, teenagers, they fall for those things all the time. Adults fall for those things all the time. That's why you pursue the things you pursue. If you're not pursuing Christ first, you'll pursue wealth, material possessions, the house, the cars, the acceptance, the approval. And you'll think in all those things, then I'll finally be fulfilled. I promise you, if you're apart from Christ, you'll be left wanting. I'm always amazed when you hear athletes achieve some of the greatest levels of success in their sport. World Series champions, Super Bowl champions, whatever it is. And they'll all tell you about 10 or 15 minutes after it wears off, they kind of sit back and think, that's it? Man, I thought this would fulfill me more. I've heard stories of Professional athletes, baseball players, look at their World Series rings a week after they won, or that championship a week after they won, and think, it's not, it didn't do for me what I thought it would. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No, that's a huge success. Man, we should, that's awesome. should celebrate that. But if it's apart from Christ, it will never be enough. And that's the obvious prodigal, the one that willingly pursues things apart from Christ, apart from God's will, and they think that will satisfy. If I just have more stuff, if I just do more things, if I just abuse that substance or I drink that, then everything will be great. And they're left in a pig pen full of dirt and mud, coming to their senses going, man, I never thought I would ever go that far. So that's the obvious prodigal. The next example we see in Luke 15 is the secret prodigal. The secret prodigal. Look at verse 25. So the story goes on. The son comes home. There's a great celebration. Verse 25. Now, his elder son, again, remember, this is a story that Jesus is telling to make a point. The underlying point of this, again, remember, is what? Something was lost. Something is found. And then we need to add this. There was great celebration. Because that which was lost was found. So here the celebration takes place. And the son, the older son, listen to what it says in verse 25, was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, thy brother is come and thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. 
Verse 28, and he was angry. He was angry. And would not go in, therefore came his father out and entreated him. I'm not even going in the party. I don't want nothing to do with that kid. I'm mad. I'm angry. So why was he so angry? Verse 29. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gave me a kid. Now that doesn't mean like literally a child. right? That's referring to the idea of the, the calf and the, the food, the celebration. That I might make merry with my friends. Doesn't this sound like a, like a, like a five-year-old throwing a tantrum? But I didn't get it. Now, some of you don't have children that are that age. You don't know that yet, but it's coming. It's coming. He took my Lego. Five billion Legos in the basement. He took one of them. I want that one. Don't get me started. Okay. Back to the text. Verse 30. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots. So again, we know at least it was riotous living involving prostitution. So this is not someone that just went and, you know, had a a rough night making some bad decisions. This was a purposeful, intentional decision to waste money on horrible things. He says, hey, he did that. And you killed for him the fatted calf. By the way, is the elder son, that's his. That belongs to him as far as when he gets married and has that celebration. That's what he's supposed to get. Goes on to say this. Verse 31. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And that's awesome. Now here's the thing. Did you catch how the brother referred to his, the older brother referred to his younger brother. He says in verse 30, but as soon as this thy son was come, he doesn't even say he's his brother. And the father reminds him, hey, that's your brother. He came home. He was dead, now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. How could we not rejoice? How could we not celebrate this return? This amazing story that Jesus is telling has a surprise ending. The older brother who never left He stayed working in the field by his own admission. I did everything he ever asked me to. I didn't ask for anything in return. He's angry that the younger brother is being celebrated for returning. He comes home, you celebrate celebration. I never left, I get nothing. That's what he's saying. And again, in context, this is part of a parable starting in the beginning of Luke 15. And the key is something was lost, something is found, and there's great rejoicing. The younger man represents Gentiles, non-Jews coming to Christ. Those that were lost and undone, the sinners of sinners that the the Jews would look down upon, the tax collectors, the harlots, the prostitutes, the the worst of the worst coming to Christ. That's who the prodigal son represents. That's us, by the way. The older brother is believed to represent the Jews, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. Those that physically never left and wasted their time on wild living, but in their hearts were just as prodigal as the other brother. Their hearts were far from him, but their lips said, oh, we praise you, we follow your commands, but inside they were just as prodigal. And they're mad because there's a celebration. Notice that Jesus tells this parable in the context of talking to the 
Jewish leaders. You guys are mad. All these people are coming to me for salvation. You're not celebrating like you should be celebrating because your heart is far from me. You need to get your heart right. Don't worry about them. They're fine. You need to fix your heart. You need to come and be found. And so again, this is the secret prodigal. The one who on the outside looks good, goes to church, says the right things, but inside, their heart is wayward. Third example of the prodigal would be the religious prodigal. The religious prodigal. So this isn't just one that tries to do other things. This is one that goes a step farther. Luke 18, probably just one or two pages over from where you are. Luke 18, verse 18. Again, very familiar story, but let's look at it through the lens of this idea of being prodigal. And a certain ruler asked him, this being someone's talking to Jesus, in Luke 18, verse 18, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a pretty important question, wouldn't you say? Hey, listen, how do I get to heaven? I've heard a lot of things. Can you just tell me what's the key? How do I get in? And I love Jesus' response. Because if somebody asked us that question, we would say, hey, super easy. Just bow your head, say this prayer, and you're in. But I love Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus speaks to the heart of the situation. But Jesus called, I'm sorry, I'm verse 19. I was in a verse above. And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is God. He said, good master. So he asked him, okay, hey, why are you calling me good? There's only one good, really, and that's, that's God. So are you calling me God? Are you saying I'm God? Now, some have used this verse to say that Jesus was denying his divinity, that he wasn't acknowledging himself as God. That's not at all what he was doing. He was affirming to the rich young ruler, do you believe that I am God? Because you said good master, but I know your heart. I don't think you really mean what you're saying out loud. Verse 20. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not, commit, sorry, yeah, do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. So he says, I've done all that. I'm good. Since I was a kid, I've kept all the commandments. No problem. Verse 22. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, yet lackest thou one thing. Now do you really think that was one thing he lacked? Jesus was trying to make a point. Sell all that you have, distribute it unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Where's the invitation to salvation? Follow me. It's not the treasure in heaven, it's follow me. The treasure in heaven, selling all you have here and storing up treasure in heaven, that's just the fruit of the following. How do we know we're following? Because we're willing to sacrifice everything for Jesus. Verse 23, and when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Not just rich, very rich. He was overly wealthy. Now, why do we look at this as an example of the prodigal? Because we talked about the obvious prodigal, the one that's pretty clear-cut, just chases the things of the world, just openly. There's a secret prodigal who looks like they're kind of behind the scenes doing everything right, but in their heart, they're drifted. Here we have the religious prodigal. In this example, we see a man that has grown up doing all the right things since his youth. He has kept the law. Now, we know that's not true because there's none righteous. No, not one. But he's saying, outwardly, I've done all the things. I've checked all the boxes. This man is full of pride. 
and self-justification. He thinks he is good to inherit eternal life just as he is, without repentance or forgiveness. He most likely expected, when he said to Jesus, I've done all that, he most likely expected Jesus to say, oh, well, then you're good. Come on in. You've already got it. I don't think he was expecting Jesus to say, "Mm, but you're lacking something. And that something is that number one, you're not supposed to have any other gods before me. You have a God before me. It's your wealth. Sell all that. Follow me. He took the heart of the whole point of the law. And you realize that when when God gave us the Ten Commandments, and the law is greater than that as far as in, in quantity, but the basic Ten Commandments, do you realize it's all founded upon you should have no other gods before me? Like every other commandment is just expounding on what it looks like to not have another God before him. Why do we not commit adultery? Because we trust God's plan for marriage. Why do we not covet our neighbor's things? Because we trust God will provide. Why don't I kill someone else? Because God says that person bears my image and is worthy of life. And I see that in right relationship with God. That's why Jesus said, love God with all of you, love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. And I can't love God with all of me if I don't know Christ is my savior. So here we see here, this man is full of pride and self-justification. He thinks he's fine. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You need to repent. You need to seek forgiveness. There's something you're missing. This man represents the individual that keeps in line with his traditions of church attendance and Bible reading. They learned it as a child and they kept on going. And praise God, we teach children these things. But teaching a child to read God's word and to pray, we do not do the work in the heart of the individual to lead them to Christ. They have to respond by faith to trust Christ. Again, this person on the outside, he is a good person that seems to have it all together. And yet, they are merely religious with no real relationship. So what is the hope for these individuals or people like this? And maybe you're sitting there thinking like, man, I'm in one of those categories. Maybe you're sitting there thinking like, well, he didn't name my category, so I'm good. I'm fine. I hope you see the principle of this is if we've drifted in our hearts, we're prodigal. I want to go to a verse in Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 26. The truth is, there is hope for every one of these examples. For the obvious prodigal that willfully chases the things of the world, for the religious prodigal that says, well, I do all the good things since I was a kid and I keep in line with those traditions, so I'm fine. It's religion, but no relationship. Or the secret prodigal, the one that seems to have that relationship, but really their heart is far from Christ. Maybe they're even saved and in a season of drifting under conviction, but refusing to repent. Acts chapter 17. So you were in Luke. You just go over a few gospels into Acts towards the back of the New Testament. Verse 26. And hath made of one blood all nations for men to dwell on the face of the earth. And it determined the times appointed appointed and the bounds of their habitation. God is creator of all people. And I love this verse because it reminds us that there's no place for prejudice or racism in the church. He says, for he hath made of one blood all nations. We're all of one blood. The human race is one. But spiritually speaking, there are two, saved and unsaved. And so he continues in verse 27. That they, those in humanity, should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. That's the key of that verse I want to point out, that he be not far from every one of us. The truth is, God is not far from us. 
He's not far from that prodigal. He's not far from that one that has drifted. He is near to them. And he is willing and ready and able to forgive and restore. Paul is speaking to the need of these pagan worshipers to realize their need for the Lord, the true God of creation. He encourages them with a powerful truth that no matter how far into sin we go, God is always present and near when we turn in faith. In our sin, we grope for God. We look for God. Naturally, we're kind of stumbling around in the darkness. We're blind. We're unable to find God by our efforts. And the problem with finding God is not that he is far from us, but that we are distant from him in sin. Naturally speaking, the problem is not that God is far from us, but that we are distant from him in sin. We are blinded to who he is, and we stumble about trying to find something that might fulfill us. But the truth is that Paul says, no man seeks after God. Not that we don't try, but that we aren't able to find him in our natural state. Because we're blinded. We stumble about groping around in darkness, hoping to come across him or something that would fulfill us. Yet through the gospel, we are made aware that he offers us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He first loved us that we might in turn love him. You see, God is always ready to redeem. So who does he redeem? Those that repent. We see this in Acts 2.38 when he says repent and be baptized. Baptism is not a part of salvation. It's evidence of our faith. So God will always redeem those that repent and always redeem those that call upon his name. Romans 10.13. If there is breath in our lungs, we have been given the opportunity to repent and call on his name. In the story of the prodigal, the father was watching and waiting, looking to the hill, waiting to see if his son was coming home. And when the young man came over the hill, the father ran to him. He did not wait for an apology, although that came. If you remember the story, he sat in the pig pen. This is what I'm going to say when I get home. I'm going to say this, and maybe I'll be one of his servants. He doesn't even get a word out of his mouth before the father grabs him, hugs him, embraces him, and is so thankful that he's just home. Now, the apology came. I don't want to minimize that. We do need to confess our sins and say, Lord, I'm sorry. But we know we're not received in grace by faith because of our apology, but because of the character of our God. We don't convince God to receive us by having a good apology ready to go. He receives us because he is good and says, I will receive you if you will repent and call on my name. Period. Done. Just repent. Just acknowledge its sin and call out to me and I will be there to embrace you and hold you close. You see, he knew the apology was there because of the mere fact his son returned was a sign of repentance. God in heaven is waiting to forgive always those that repent and call on his name. Oh, the wonderful grace of God. That when we were wandering away from him in sin, enemies of God, Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. I want to challenge you with two things quickly. We're going to pray and be dismissed with a time of invitation. If you're here this morning and you know someone that has gone prodigal, you know someone that is maybe religious prodigal. They've professed it, but they don't have it. There's no relationship there. Maybe they're secret. They sound good, but they've drifted into a season of sin or they're obvious. They're just out in the world. They just don't care. They're just doing whatever they want. They don't care what God thinks. I want to encourage you. If you're not sure what to do, pray. 
pray for boldness to share the gospel with them anew that they would renew their faith or come to know Christ in the beginning of it. Come and pray for their hearts and minds to be open to the truth that they have heard. And if you are here this morning and you know you're prodigal, you've drifted, you're not where you need to be with the Lord. Maybe it's secret, you look the part, but inside you're drifted. Maybe it's obvious you're just seeking fulfillment in the world's pleasures, or maybe you're religious, checking all the boxes, but there, there is no real relationship. Then my encouragement to you is the Spirit of God is calling you to come home, to just come to your senses, to realize the grace that is available, and by faith receive that forgiveness, to call out in repentance and watch His grace make you new. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are. As we have a time of invitation, here's what I want to do. As you begin to pray there where you are, I'm just going to ask you, if you have a family member, a friend, someone that you know that has drifted, would you come and pray? Would you bend a knee for them? Would you come to the front and say, Lord, I'm going to lift up, and you name that person to the Lord. I'm going to ask that you'd give them wisdom and guidance. Draw them back to your grace. Draw them back to to the faith. Encourage them that there there is no fulfillment apart from Christ, that we need you. Maybe you're here today and you have a son or a daughter, a granddaughter, a grandchild that has drifted away into sin. And maybe they talk the talk or they seem religious, but they're drifted. Maybe you'd come and pray for them. Maybe you're here and you're a parent or a grandparent and you've been beating yourself up. That if you would have just done better, they wouldn't be where they are. Maybe you'd come and say, Lord, thank you for the reality of your grace. That I wasn't a perfect parent. I'm not a perfect parent. But I know that I can only do what I can do. So thank you for your grace that forgives me where I failed and fall short. And help me to continue to lead, guide, and direct my children or grandchildren in the way that would be fit and suitable for your honor and your glory. And so, Father, may you work in all of this that we would just come before you in prayer and adoration. And, Father, for the one that is here right now that has drifted, I know you are calling them and inviting them to come home, to turn from their sin, to trust in you, to call upon your name, and to receive that grace that makes all things new. And so, Father God, in all these things, we ask that you would work, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? So many have already come to the altar. Would you come? Would you join them as we begin to pray and seek the Lord and asking God to work in the life of a prodigal, one that would return home and find that grace and forgiveness. Would you come and pray there in your seats or here at the altar? Let's respond to what the Lord is doing as we sing.